This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the bi-weekly show that takes a look at movies in theaters or on streaming platforms and usually compares them to films from days gone by. But uh, this week we're doing something a little different, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I'm Stephen Cook. I'm a freelance music and entertainment writer here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, and I am a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw on the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And this week we're taking a look at the new Sight and Sound 100 Best Films of All Time list that just came out. And uh, we're going to try and catch up with a few of the titles on it that we haven't seen before. And we hope you enjoyed this look at some of the greatest films supposedly ever made. So, Stephen, here on Lens Me Your Ears, our film podcast, we're wrapping up the year 2020, and oh, it's a time for lists, <laughs> yes. you know. And uh, and Sight and Sound has dropped their greatest films of all time list a few weeks ago. They do this once every 10 years, which brings a great deal of attention from you know the global community of film lovers. And boy, did this one uh, land with a lot of controversy. I think more so than maybe would be usually due to this particular list. Um, And, you know, the number one greatest film of all time was not one that I think many people had even had seen, some maybe not even heard of. I mean, I personally knew Chantal Ackerman as a filmmaker, but I don't know that I'd ever seen one of her films myself. And I'd never seen Jean Dielman. That's only the first part of the title, but that's, uh, that's the one. Now, this... Uh, full, exp- you know, full explanation. This this particular list had 1,639 participants. So academics, distributors, writers, curators, archivists, and programmers. So not just critics, but a b- much broader selection of people chose this list, including a broader demographic of cinephiles than maybe have ever contributed to this list before. I think we're talking about diversity here. People who think different films are are uh, are the greatest and so it's shaking up the canon and yes. uh, and that's upset some folks and then that was precisely what uh this jury set out to do and uh i don't think that's a bad thing <laughs> i don't I, I don't know why you know we need to see the same boring reiteration of the same you know classic films over and over again and that uh, this whole thing uh has been a very interesting uh, cause for debate on online movie forums and and so on and and it uh kind of shakes things up and encourages you to uh, expand your your viewing uh, habits a little bit I think. Yeah, absolutely. I I'm, I'm all for it too. I mean, I think when we start talking about this particular film that tops the list, I think we'll have to sort of decide. I mean, we can <laughs> For anyone who's interested, we can share our opinions of what we think of the greatest movie of all time. Uh, I'm not sure that this is it, but I thought it was a fascinating film. I was so glad to see it. And look, this film list has already succeeded by getting us to watch the movie. So in that respect, I think it's great. Uh, and I, I found it a fascinating shakeup. There's a lot of new things going on with this with this film list that uh, they brought in many more newer films I think maybe I think seven or eight from the 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 new century the 21st century uh, and a number of them I am like yes this these deserve to be here of course if I was contributing I would probably have voted for a few others but you know get out for instance is number 95 parasite at 90. Portrait of a Lady on Fire at number 30. Now, that's really something. I mean, and there is no doubt that these pictures are freighted with their politics. I actually, 
I'm a big fan of Celine Sciamma's more recent film, Petite Maman, which she released since Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I think I like it even more than Portrait, but it's not as political a film. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's the state of our times. I think we're finding that different kinds of films are important to people and a more diverse selection of people having their say in, in a list like this are choosing movies that have something to say to them. You know, uh, these are films that have a lot of political messaging and and people are saying these are the ones that are are the best and that's i find that really interesting yeah it, it it's it's great to have uh some new uh food for thought in these films and i mean some of them are ones that were just maybe further down the list and they might have been uh in or were further down the list in, in years past than they might be on this particular list and they've been brought more to the fore but but it is great to have some uh some fresh blood and some some fresh air blown into this particular ranking. And it's and it's nothing new, this sort of controversy. We were talking before we went on mic about how uh, in the 60s, uh, La Ventura got a very high placing. Uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, uh, Nouvelle Vague, Italian classic, uh, you know, got a high placing uh, early on in the uh, the history of this list, which has been going since, what, the early 50s, I think? I mean, it's it's been around for a while, uh, coming out every 10 years. And and people complained then that it was too new and too fresh and shouldn't be considered part of the can. But but you know it's it's an enduring classic uh, that proved to be highly influential and deserves uh, to uh, to still be on there. It's still in some ways it still feels very modern in a lot of ways and and hugely influential. So yeah, you know, it's it's interesting how history kind of repeats itself with these kind of changes uh, to the sight and sound list. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I. I mean, I've read some of the film critics who have railed against this, you know, and it's wokest agenda and liberal politics crawling into this, into something which was a bastion of cinephilia. And I'm like, well, if you thought that the list wasn't political previous to 2022, and the people making the calls were just film critics, and they were in a huge, uh, the mass of them were white and male, then you haven't been paying attention. Because that is political. Yes, exactly. You know? That is political. So Sins of omission. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I just think, yeah, I think it's fascinating. I am looking forward to watching more of these. We were saying how many we have seen. You really impressed me, Stephen, by <laughs> saying how many How many of the list of 100 have you already seen? Uh, 77 of the, the 100 films uh, I have seen. Uh, there's also a few on here. There's like three or four that I actually have copies of that I just haven't gotten around to watching yet. So... You know, if I would have been a little more diligent in uh, keeping up with my purchases, I probably could have bumped that up, you know, up into up into 80 or, or 81 or so. But, uh, you know, certainly as the year goes on, I'll be uh, checking off more boxes as far as uh, this list goes. Well, that is very impressive. I am a little embarrassed to say I only have seen 50, so half of the number, which I feel is I'm really there are, are some major, you know, blind spots here that I really need to uh, to check out and watch. And, uh, you know, and I I am I'm also interested in in where some of these titles show up in the list. Like, for instance, I'm just going to pick up and pick and choose something like, for instance, uh, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, which is, I think, one of only two Westerns. And uh, I also noticed just actually that that the Wild Bunch isn't here. I feel as far as elegaic Westerns go, I sort of prefer the Wild Bunch because I think we also get one of the greatest finales of a film ever. 
at the end of that. And I, I think I would have gone with that one. But uh, Once Upon a Time in the West is actually tied for 95th. So it's pretty much at the end of the list here. Um, I did, was so thrilled to see My Neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away both on this list. Yes. Nice to see Miyazaki represented. Nice to see Blade Runner, one of my favorites here on the list. Um, and, uh, you know, I wondered about the... Uh, about some of the Hitchcock films. There are ones here I think I might have chosen over others. Uh, I'm less of a fan of North by Northwest than some are, but I know some people love it. Um, <laughs> Myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, sure, sure. Um, but what about the Kubricks on here? Understandable that 2001 A Space Odyssey would be in the top 10. But with all due respect, Barry Lyndon is also on this list. I mean, I, I'm sorry, but we've I, been down this road before. I love Barry Lyndon. And I will, I will fight that one. Fair that enough. One. Fair enough. I mean, I just think, and I'm glad to see this that uh, The Shining is here. But Doctor Strangelove didn't make the list, and I'm sorry. I would trade out Barry Lyndon for Doctor Strangelove. In fact, I would trade it out for any number of other Kubricks, including Paths of Glory, which is the one that I I really love, but. Anyway, so yeah, so these are the kinds of things that that people will be arguing about, and uh, and it's all hopefully in the good spirit of like passion around film. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, comedies rarely fare well on these sort of things. I'm glad to see that the General by Buster Keaton is still hanging on there at the, the second last on the list. I don't I don't know uh, what that means for it uh, in the future. I, I think it's a film that. Uh, you know, younger generations keep rediscovering uh, over and over again. So maybe, maybe it'll uh, manage to bump up in time, uh, get back up to where it uh, once was. But, uh, but yeah, it's, if it's, if you're a comedy, that maybe that's why Strange Love has uh, fallen out of favor in terms of uh, other titles. And maybe some people feel it's satire hasn't uh, stood the test of time as well oh. as, as other things. But I, I still think it's a pretty marvelous film, and yeah, it should be on there for sure. Yeah, and it's great seeing a lot more. Uh, women directors represented here uh you know and i i was a little sad to see one of my favorite films has uh dropped off which is chinatown but then i'm like well you know what a lot of people these days they are unable to watch a film that uh, has a convicted rapist as its director and i am understandable i mean that under i understand that i i get it uh and that is something they can't separate from the work so there are lots of other films that we could it doesn't diminish the quality of the work necessarily not objectively but uh, if you can't watch it then you're not going to put it on a list of the best greatest films of all time right yeah and it's it's certainly like uh, i'm sure a lot of jurors kind of looked at their their ballots and went well you know why why give air to that when there's some other more deserving films that need to get the attention and 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 i think that's you know how a lot of people look at it not necessarily if the films they thought were the greatest but the films they thought were maybe the most deserving of uh some some a broader uh broader audience and and that's not necessarily a bad thing either no it isn't i mean it it does you know this is the kinds of things that people are going to get into the grains of, yes uh, <laughs> of it but uh but yeah let's talk about jean jean dealman i uh, hope we're not pronouncing that right it's it's uh it is the Chantal Ackerman film, and it was number 36 in the 2012 list, and now it has vaulted into the number one position. Now, Ackerman died in 2015. I gather she committed suicide after a lifetime of mood disorder, uh, which is, is sad to hear about. But uh, I thought the film was remarkable. And I think it's a lot more demanding of the viewer than maybe some of the other films that have topped this list in the past, like Vertigo or Citizen Kane. It's long. It's three hours long. And it demands you step up to meet it in a way that 
to to understand what's trying to say. There's there's no you know stylistic virtuosity in the way that's really eye eye catching. And in some other films, will you just know you're watching an epic? This is an epic for its running time, but it's not it's not the same way that that something like a you know Lawrence of Arabia is an epic. Um, and it's not the, a tale of a great or flawed hero. It's a deeply feminist story. Uh, about the way a 40-ish woman, played by Delphine Seyrig, lives her days. There's no score. There's these lockdown cameras. Mostly, I think 75% of it is shot in her apartment in Brussels. And whole scenes are devoted to the mundanity of her day-to-day life, from cleaning the bathroom to cooking, preparing breakfast for her adult son, who seems to be sort of living with her, but he doesn't really have his own room. He sleeps in the living room. She does everything for him, so... While he's not really ungrateful, he's also not anything like she is. She is very independent, and he is not. No. And uh, he's very disconnected. From, yeah, from everything. And it's funny, you know. In the first, the it's it's told over three days. And the first day, I was like, she doesn't seem lonely or resentful or damaged by her circumstance. She seems just fine to live her route. She has a routine, and she lives it. Um, and then there's a moment where she's talking about her son and, and how she and her and his father met during the war and how she didn't want to get married, but it was the thing to do and she wanted a child. And, and there's a moment about halfway in where, uh, you know, she's starting to – she's peeling potatoes and you, you see him and something changes in her face. Like it's a very gradual thing. But if you're paying attention, you start to see it and the drama really ratchets up. Over the course of this film, I was amazed at how gripped I was by it. I was really surprised. Yeah, it's it's a remarkable performance. And, uh, I, you know, while I'm watching, I'm trying to think about how Chantal Ackerman was putting this film together on the page and and – and in her mind, because it, it feels very improvised and yet very structured at the same time and very formalist, I guess, is the term that, that people throw around. And it's very, you know, there, there's a tautness to it in, in, in the actions and then the routines that, uh, uh Delphine, uh, Seyrig, the, uh, the star of the film as, uh, as Jean goes through over the course of these three days. And it's, I just, you know, I just try to imagine the director and, and her star kind of conferring over how, uh, they would approach this character and how just the, the most gradual of, of hints that, that she is kind of unraveling, um, you know, it's, it's all of a sudden there's a hair out of place and you notice it, like you really pick up on these signals and, uh, it, it creates an amazing tension, even though she's just sitting there peeling potatoes or, or making coffee or whatever, but the, there's so much uh, going on beneath the surface and you, the film gives you the time to kind of take it in and evaluate and think about this character and what must be going through her mind. And it, yeah, it did not feel slow or long to me. Now I put my phone away. I turned the phone off and I, I put it away from the couch <laughs> so that I wasn't tempted to, to kind of, you know, look at it or kind of, because there's not a lot of dialogue, so you're not worried about focusing on subtitles a lot of the time. But but it does really demand your attention. But at the same time, it does pay uh, huge rewards as a result. Oh, for sure. You know, there's a scene where she's sitting at the table with her son and she tells him uh, a second time, actually, not to read at the table. And he obeys until the second course of the meal, which is potatoes, is delayed. And then he starts reading again. And I start to ask myself. Will she say anything? Will she get angry? <laughs> yes. But she doesn't. Now, the, the, I, I read the review in my Time Out film guide who described the son as moronic. And I'm not sure I'd go that far, but 
I think he's just he's very sheltered and dull and can't do anything for himself. You know, he, he seems weirdly interested in his parents' sex life and how it was before his father died. And he seems very judgmental. Um, and, you know, she doesn't have any friends, it seems. And she is, in order to make ends meet, she has a, you know, a regular appointment in the afternoon with a man. Uh, you know, she indulges in, in sex work or indulges, probably not the right word, but she she is a sex worker. And, uh, you know. We're watching her go through her days, and she's figured it all out, you know. But by the third day, you see that she's doing a lot more thinking, and her whole routine starts to get disrupted. Uh, and it just made me think about so many other more recent films where filmmakers must have seen this and been inspired by it. I'm thinking of Michael Haneke's Cachet Hidden, or mm-hmm. films by Apichat Pong, We're Set the Cool, like those long, quiet, still scenes where well, there's a whole scene that's minutes long of just her sitting in the living room. It's a little bit like a painting by Edward Hopper. You know, or when she goes to her favorite restaurant. I thought of Hopper as well uh, uh, on a number of occasions over the course of the film. I'd say Heather Young's Murmur would be a film that, uh, you know, I'd say she she would probably claim Ackerman as a pretty strong influence. Yeah, for sure. That's a great, that's a great connection. Definitely. Um, Anyway, so something happens in the last few minutes that it seems very matter of fact. And I was wondering why it happened. And I, the film will not explain, you know, and you know that's not going to explain. But uh, I just I, – I thought about that for hours afterwards. I just was – you know, I just felt really impacted by it. And I, I wondered whether or not it – you know, it explain it gave us enough hints that this is the direction that this character was going to go. But uh, – Oh my gosh, I so enjoyed the the journey of this film. Yeah, and and yeah, the 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 climax of the film, the so that, that as you say the last uh, 15 minutes or so, I I I could totally rationalize it in my head. I met, was able to kind of puzzle it out mm-hmm. and think it through and say, "Yeah, I can see why that happened and, you know, basically why she just does something that will completely change the routine of her life forever basically." And and uh it's it's but it's completely understandable, I think, uh, you know, when you have all the evidence that's before you uh as to as to what happens and it's you know it's so worth the wait to get there and you know as 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 someone uh you know i sat through uh avatar uh the way of oh my gosh so did i yeah you know which which is just about as long as this one is and felt longer (laughs) and so even though there's so much going on and so much to look at and so so much detail packed into every frame, and yet I could not wait for that one to end. Oh, my gosh. I 100% felt the same way. Like, I was blown away not to detour this conversation. Yeah, into listen, I don't want to go down that avenue too much, but, but, just but yeah, comparison. it's so funny to think about that. That's a, It's a great comparison because Avatar is all about kineticism, about technology, and about showing us things that are supposed to wow us, and yet it felt so much longer than this film where literally we're watching someone prepare dinner three times, you know, it's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing what cinema can do and in different ways. Um, so I guess that brings us to the question. Do you think this deserves to be called the greatest film ever made? I mean, that is, I mean, for me, one of the criteria I have for great films is rewatchability. And I find, I, I mean, I am now about a week after I watch this, maybe I will watch it again. Sometime in the future, but I remember at getting to the end of it and going like, whew, I don't know if I can sit <laughs> through that again. Um, but maybe I will. I, I mean, I've thought about it a lot since then. Yeah, I, I don't know that I will. I mean, it'd be interesting to go back and and, and watch it and see if uh, I can pick up on other signs about what's happening uh, in, uh, in in John's mind as, as the film progresses. But I feel like, 
like one watch through uh, gives you enough time and space to, to, to grapple with all of these things. And I don't know that I, I would return to it or, or, you know, purchase a copy of it for my, for future viewing or what have you. But, uh, I certainly glad I spent, spent time with it and I can certainly, I can certainly see it being in the top 10, maybe not the best of all time, but, uh, certainly it's a film that resonated with enough people that it wound up on the ballots in such a way that it got there. And I'll be, I'll be curious to see what happens, uh, you know, on the next list to see if it still uh, holds on to that spot. I have a feeling it probably won't, but you never know. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, I, I sort of feel the same way as you do, Stephen. I, I think it's absolutely deserving to be amongst the best. I don't know if it is truly the number one. I mean, I, I think if I was choosing, it would be something that maybe not even on this list, but, uh, but I did, uh, yeah, I did absolutely. I'm so glad to have seen it. And, uh, it actually prompted me to choose another film by Chantal Ackerman that's on the list and that's news from home. And it's a documentary that she shot around New York city in 1976 in voiceover over images of the city, you know, tenements, street scenes, uh, the camera on the subway and in, in, down in, in the in the New York subway and uh, uh, and on you know in in cars as we drive around Manhattan, we hear the letters that Ackerman received from her mother between 1971 and 1973 when she was living in New York and she was starting to become a filmmaker and working in a variety of jobs and so she I guess reads out these letters that she received over these images of New York. And the footage is incredible. If you are a fan of New York City, you've got to see news from home. There's a lots of shots of people just walking in the streets, all those 70s fashions. Of course, everyone, many people looking very stylish in New York and all those subway cars and Times Square Station um, and uh, even shots from trains on elevated tracks. So you're seeing like the neighborhoods pass by in Queens or Brooklyn or wherever they are. And uh, the city has so changed since then. I mean, at the time, it was a decaying metropolis of old brown buildings, lots of grime. And, uh, you know, and the, the, it just anyway, it's as a document of the city and a capturing that moment in time. It's incredible. Yeah, it's it was a great kind of flashback to, uh, you know, I remember my first trip to New York. In uh, 1979, which is like three years later, uh, three years after this film came out, but but still uh, not a lot had changed in the city at that point. There's 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 a shot that's done out the window of a, of an elevated subway train uh, as it travels through, I believe, Queens. Uh, but I just felt I think I've been on this route because this feels familiar, and I feel I feel like not a lot has changed in some of these. Uh, some of these landscapes and some of, some of it has, but it is an interesting portrait of the city and, and of the kind of alienation that she felt, even though we're not getting her perspective, we're getting her, her mother's kind of feedback on whatever it is that she's writing in her letters home. Uh, A lot of parental guilt. <laughs> and there's, there's so much guilt, you know, and, and clearly there was a, a really strong bond between the director and her mother, which we, you know, which comes across in the letters and, and, you know, in, in the events of her own life, but, uh, it just, uh, that the, the idea of this metropolis just kind of swallowing you up and, you know, absorbing your identity comes across so strongly in the film as we just have one streetscape after another and just these kind of faces parading by. And, and it's always interesting when, when some of them notice the camera and some of them don't. And, uh, I, I can't imagine she was too bothered over whether they did or not. There's, there's great, there's a great scene inside of a subway station where that she captures people as they come down the stairs. And of course, as they're coming down, they can't see the camera until they're right at the bottom of the stairs and just, you know, so you're just anticipating the facial expressions, you know, as uh, whether or not they catch the camera or not. And it's all, 
you know, there's, there's a lot packed into every one of those shots that, uh, you know, you wonder what's going to happen next. At one point, a Carmen Ghia goes by, which I was very excited by, you know, Volkswagen sports car, which uh, I'm very fond of. Uh, and that was a, a nice little me moment in there. But, uh, but it did, you know, it did bring up those memories of the city and how vast and imposing it, it seemed at the time, uh, even when I was a kid, and, and how it must have felt to, uh, to Ackerman as being kind of a stranger in a strange land. Oh, I must, it must have been. And, and that juxtaposition of these letters and this voice of, uh, the, you know, the mom basically so worried about her daughter and, and giving her news of her, par- of her you know, father and, and siblings and family members. and But mostly just like, please write. Haven't heard from you in a while. Please send photos. Uh, we miss you. We love you. Like all of that kind of stuff over these shots of these of this very, you know, urban landscape. And uh, it gives this incredibly strong feeling of melancholy, I thought, this alienation and exile. Now, I mentioned Edward Hopper with Jean Dielman, her her Ackerman's film that is on the list as well. And this one even has more of that intangible loneliness, you know? Uh, I it, Seeing news from home and seeing Jean Dielman for this uh, for this episode of, of Lends Me Your Ears, I, uh, it just makes me want to watch more of her films. Like, these are incredible. Yeah, there's a shot in uh, News from Home of a, of a diner, a shot through a diner window. And of course, it just immediately evokes Hopper because that's one of his most famous paintings uh, is this through the window of a diner. And... Uh, and uh, you know, I, I think that was uh, that's uh, very intentional. Hi, and welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at normally new films. But uh, on this uh, occasion, myself, uh, Stephen Cook, and my co-host Karsten are looking at titles in the new Sight and Sound Top 100 Films of All Time list that uh, came out in the last couple of weeks, and. Uh, this is a great opportunity to do something which we, we kind of do. We, we've done a few episodes where we kind of go through uh, Roger Ebert's great movies, uh, books and lists and, and pick titles from there that we weren't previously familiar with and, and try to try to expand our horizons in terms of uh, the great uh, cinematic canon. But of course, this list is kind of uh, the end all and be all, or it's often felt to be the, the, the end all and be all of these kind of lists because of the range of, of people that submit ballots. And there's also a filmmakers list. Um, you know, many, many top filmmakers submit their top 10 favorites and they're very interesting to, to look at and, and so on. And, and this film uh, is, is one that I've been aware of for a long time and just not have not gotten around to watching it. Uh, and it's uh, one that was uh, frequently championed by Martin Scorsese as one of his favorite films. Uh, it was on um, a collection of films from emerging countries um, or, and uh, developing nations. And it's it was kind of a, a major hit of the uh, of the international cinema circuit in the 1970s. And it's a uh, Tuki Wuki, and uh, which is. Uh, I believe is a uh, journey of the hyena is, is the uh, kind of English translation of the title. But I think most people just go with the original uh, Senegalese title of Tuki Buki um, from 1973, directed by Jibril Diop Mambetti, uh, a filmmaker who didn't make a lot of films. He had a couple of shorts. He made this and I think one other sort of full length feature and uh, then some shorter kind of hour long uh, pieces. But, uh, but this is a, a film that uh, made a big impression in 1973 and was highly influential and also inspired a lot of other African filmmakers. And it's essentially the story of, of two young people who are looking to get out of Senegal. They want, they have dreams of getting to Paris. Um, you know, they have a scheme to get some money together so that they can get on a boat and, and uh, leave Senegal and head to France. 
And it's it's kind of this uh, shaggy dog story of how they they achieve this, um, you know, through uh, through the sort of theft of uh, of items from a local gangster, uh, which uh, they can parlay into the money for the for the boat tickets. So there's a bit of a Bonnie and Clyde kind of aspect to it, and it's also got a really fun freewheeling energy to it. Uh, the characters are very likable uh, and. Uh, as they as they go through these misadventures, and we kind of wonder what's going to happen to these uh, these two young lovers as they kind of scheme and plan their way uh, of, of escape, and it's uh, it's in its newly restored version, which I watched on the Criterion channel, and I think it's uh, also been released on disc by Criterion. Um, you know, it's it's been freshly uh, re- remastered and restored, and it's very very colorful, vibrant, lots of music uh, throughout the film. Uh, I of note is uh, there are scenes uh, in an abattoir, which may be disturbing to some. You, you may want to skip over the first five minutes or so because there's a scene of a water buffalo being slaughtered, which is uh, uh, not pretend, and uh, and some of this stuff can be uh, kind of disturbing today. But it's um, the main character is a he's a he's a coward, and it's part of his daily existence and it's got that kind of documentary feel. So uh, that part of it, be forewarned if, if you decide mm-hmm. to check out the film. But uh, but apart from that, it's it's a very joyous, lively, and, and life-affirming kind of story. Yeah, that, that opening, that's that's really gets your audience's attention. You want to you get their attention? Yeah, yeah have, it have does. This, have this, uh, this oxen dragged into the abattoir, blood all over the floor, and then have this scene. Uh, and, it, and actually about 10 minutes later, where there's another animal whose throat is slit. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of nonlinear storytelling going on here with Tuki Buki. Uh, and I, uh, much of which I just, yeah, I felt like in the grip of the movie, you know, how some movies just like, what is going to happen next? And, yes. and it may not entirely make sense, but it's so visceral that you can't help but feel connected to it. And that's the way I felt about this one. Uh, I learned that, um, that the filmmaker is the uncle of director Maddie Diop, whose new film, recent film, Atlantics, I saw last year out of Senegal. Oh, also okay. a terrific movie. Um, it was also about an effort to escape from Senegal to Europe, a, a sort of a migratory film. And, and in that respect, has a, a similar thematic quality to this one. Um, but yeah, it's it's... You know, it's this mix of docudrama and fiction, very hard sometimes to tell where one ends and the other begins. Uh, and I understand that from what I read about the film, that it was the influence of the French New Wave in this filmmaking, the sort of raw, unfussy storytelling. But it does make room for a lot of weird editing in sound and fantasy sequences. But you see a lot of people living in poverty, trying to make a living selling things. We see police officers and card games and grifters and even a public wrestling match. I love the cinematography because the the shots of the ocean and the arid landscape are gorgeous, the baobab trees and the city as well, the juxtaposition of colors, red and yellow. And I mean, you know, you see a lot of, of... Dakar and you know the the just the the way people live in in the 70s in uh, in Senegal and oh man and then as you say the characters are are vivid um uh, Maury the lead character the the cowboy he also rides a motor scooter with ox horns across the <laughs> handlebars uh and early on in the film he's attacked by another group of men he's taken away in a pickup truck and I'm like what is happening and then we then he's fine and it's like what what is going on here there's, there's like a there's a lot of 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 imagery and and jump sort of jump cuts in a way that that I found myself a little I guess disoriented I wasn't sure what was happening some of the time but I I stuck with it and I'm I'm glad I did um, you know, it, there's, I found, 
And I really like the ending, and I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who wants to watch, but but we get this scene on the docks where we get lines, we get a bunch of dialogue from, from colonial visitors, I guess, and they're wealthy, privileged French people on a boat. And, uh, and then we intercut with scenes of Maury running and of an ox being dragged away again. And it's just like there's this cyclical nature yes. to this storytelling, right? Yeah, it's got a lot to say about colonialism and, and you know, the – the effort required to free yourself from the colonial yoke as it were. And, uh, there's a lot of satire, uh, in the film. Some of it, uh, probably went over my head because I may not necessarily know about all the political situations of Senegal, but, uh, in the early seventies, but, but I think a lot of it, uh, still rings pretty true. And, and it just felt uh, really vibrant and fun and meaningful in, in a lot of different ways. I think, uh, yeah, you mentioned the, the French New Wave uh, influence. Certainly, uh, Senegal being a French colony would have had this great influx of uh, French culture. And I'm sure that the films of Truffaut and Godard were, were probably uh, accessible or readily available to view at the, by the uh, the young filmmakers of the country uh, back in the day. And I'm guessing, uh, or at least it felt to me that they probably had a chance to see a Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, the Melvin Van Peebles movie, because that also feels like a major influence on this film as well. Uh, it just in, in its kind of approach to the material and incorporating flashbacks and, and, and that kind of very non-fussy um, way of jumping around in time and so on. It, it's, it's all a, a part of that and it's uh, very well incorporated here. Yeah. Yeah. I love the scene where he, he takes a bunch of clothes and he and, and, and uh, the two main characters dress up and they steal this incredible steal car. car and then they just look so, you know, it's like a fantasy of what wealth and ostentatious behavior, luxury means. Uh, and then they get, we hear over and over again, Josephine Baker. Perry, 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 and the dream of going to Paris and living high on the hog and how, how, and we hear that song over and over again to the point where it's like, oh, okay, wow, this is, <laughs> this is like an obsession, right? And it's maybe not anywhere near what reality is going to be like, but it's what drives people. And moving a little further north from Senegal, we're going back to Iran for a filmmaker that we've uh, we looked at when we did a show entirely on Iranian cinema. And it was a great treat to uh, revisit the work of Abbas Kiarostami. And uh, we watched uh, A Taste of Cherry, which is probably his best known film uh, on that particular show. I encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, that program. But but uh, in this case, we looked at his 1990 film Close Up. And it's uh, it's a really intriguing blend of of drama and kind of mock documentary, pseudo documentary, if you will, um, that looks at uh, kind of the arrest and trial and kind of a rejuvenation of a man who was uh, uh, based on a true story of a man who Im impersonated a, a well-known Iranian filmmaker, obviously a, a friend of Kiarostami's uh, who actually appears in the film in this fictionalization of the story of his impersonation. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's got a lot of the, the hallmarks of Iranian cinema. There's lots of scenes set in cars and uh, lots of dialogue scenes that take place uh, while characters are on the move from one place to another. What is up with that, Stephen? We've seen all these <laughs> Iranian films we watch yeah. have these scenes in cars. I think I think it means uh, they can do these scenes without being subject to restrictions or being watched. Uh, yes, I, that I makes sense. I feel like it gives the filmmakers freedom because they're on the move uh, that maybe – you know, the government can't spy on them as readily while they're mm -hmm. filming key dialogue scenes and expressing some of the, the main ideas of the film uh, in the confined and 
safe space of a, of an automobile on the move. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's part of it. it. It may just be a convenience, uh, factor where they're not, uh, they're not sort of obviously out in the open on a, on a city street or in a location where police could shut them down at any moment. If, uh, if uh, I don't know how permits and that sort of thing work, but it, it seems to be uh, a way that they can, you know, have characters interact in a, mm. in a space that they have more control over. Yeah. It makes total sense. Yeah. And I'll uh, explain it that way for sure. So there is some of that, but there's also uh, scenes that uh, are filmed inside of a courtroom that are done very much in the style of a documentary. And, uh, and then just straight up uh, dramatic scenes, uh, you know, in, in the house of, of a man that this, um, or of a family that this man is impersonating, uh, now I'm going to, I'm going to screw up this name, but, uh, but Mohsen, uh, uh, is the filmmaker that, uh, he's impersonating and, uh, he wants to, he stay, basically is staying with this family and, uh, with presumably with the intent that he's going to make a film based on their lives. Uh, and it's not really clear at first, you know, what he stands to gain from doing this impersonation. Uh, and it turns out it's just a, a way for him to, f- you know, he's, he's, he's a lonely guy who feels like he has no status in society, but by pretending to be someone well-known and respected, he feels like he can earn some of that respect himself. And, uh, and that's basically, that's what he's stealing is respect and, uh, a feel of, uh, of, of attaining a higher position in, in life, uh, even if it's just for a brief instant. And so it's, it's, it's a very kind of perplexing sort of case and, and it's the, the legal, uh, the legal aspect of it in the courtroom where the, the judge is trying to get to the bottom of why he would do this impersonation when he, it doesn't appear that he planned to rob them or, or take anything of value. He was just trying to make himself feel better. And it's, it's, it's such a interesting, uh, turn of events that, uh, I, you know, I just felt compelled to keep going. And then of course we get the surprise when the, at the end, when the actual filmmaker, uh, becomes part of the story. And this is the thing that shocked me about this film, Stephen, is, is it's not a, it's a reenactment where, where Kiarostami convinced all the participants to play themselves. Yeah. So you're seeing this whole story reenacted and, and shot where, where the, you know, this, this man, I mean, you got to imagine there's got to be a lot of embarrassment or something, shame maybe for him having been arrested for fraud and then put on trial. And now this is something maybe I wasn't 100% sure about. Was the trial that we watched the actual trial or was it a reenactment of the trial? I think it was a reenactment, but I'm not 100% sure. I I can't imagine. I, I feel like trying to film a trial in Iran would be Highly yeah. difficult. Very difficult. And Though I can't see him getting permission to do that, but yeah. you never know. Yeah. So so yeah, and of course Kiristami sort of himself plays a role. You hear his voice from behind the camera and uh and it's it's and you, you actually see him, I guess, briefly, but it is I can understand why this film also appears on this list because it's so metatextual. I mean, reenacting this entire thing with how was he able to convince every participant, including the family who were taken advantage of. And, uh, you know, I would love to see a making of to show how he managed to convince them all to participate. And in this society, it it seems to be saying a lot about the way that filmmakers are, are, uh, are loved and and uh, lifted up and uh, within Iranian society, given especially that this one man pretended to be this famous ir- filmmaker. Um, but it's also talking about people's, you know, being naive and being taken advantage of in a way. And uh, it was all really fascinating. But again, it's a very formalist kind of film. Uh, I I found it really interesting. I wasn't 
terribly moved by it, but I did feel like with a lot of Iranian film, and this certainly is is the case with this one, I feel like I got a window into the nuts and bolts of its of the society, you know, and better understanding of of what what would uh, of what's going on there. Um, I would say that if I was going to nominate a film from Iranian cinema, I would definitely choose movies by Asghar Farhadi, who's my favorite of of the Iranian you know uh, filmmakers. I think A Separation is one of the best films of the 21st century. Absolutely belongs on this list. So anyway, not to say, but then maybe A Separation wouldn't have been able to be made without Kiarostami's influence. So maybe that's why this is in it and that isn't. Well, I, I definitely think uh, the, the question of influence really comes into play here because he is certainly one of the masters of, of Iranian cinema. And this, I think this, uh, this film kind of took things to a new level in, in terms of, uh, you know, playing with the form and, and doing things with this manner of storytelling that uh, hadn't been seen in, in Iranian film. And isn't the sort of thing that we see, uh, in uh, you know, film in the Western world as much uh, either. So it 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 really uh, it really is a film that gives you a lot to think about. And I, I did feel uh, some emotion towards the end when you know when he's he's uh, getting out of jail and and uh, you know is kind of you know looking for some reconciliation with the oh. family and 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 um, from uh, the, from the filmmaker himself. I, I did. Uh, feel some emotion there, but, but everything is played pretty close to the chest. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I kind of appreciate the fact that there aren't a lot of hysterics and, or, uh, you know, over the top kind of playing It's played out very naturally, which I, I, I really appreciated. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. The acting feels very natural and, and, and somehow he's able to get these performances out of non-actors that I, I was all quite impressive. I guess they're playing themselves, but they don't seem necessarily very awkward. Um, we should mention Stephen that we're watching all these films on the Criterion Channel, which has, uh, I think, maybe half of the the list are, is available on the Criterion Channel. At least Channel. half, if not more. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's a place where people can watch these films as well, if you're interested. Um, so, before we move on to the next segment, Stephen, I think, I mean, I'm I'm all for these two films being on this list. I think, even though I said I, you know, my favorite uh, Iranian filmmaker Farhadi, I think I would choose one of his films to be on, uh, maybe not in place of Close Up, but along with Close Up. Um, yeah, I can understand why both of these have been chosen. Oh, for sure. And, you know, one of, one of the points of, of, uh, broadening the, the, the voters list for the, for the, uh, for the list is, is to, uh, really make sure that these kinds of films are included, that, that other countries other than Europe, Asia, and, uh, North America, uh, you know, that, uh, the other continents, if you will, uh, you know, have their place uh, amongst this canon. Uh, I know uh, there's some complaints that there wasn't enough South American um, representation on the list, and maybe so. Maybe that'll change uh, ten years from now. Hard to say, but 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 certainly these are are very uh, strong examples of their uh, national cinemas. City of God, City of God. Yeah, no kidding. Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. (laughs) 
So this is our uh, our episode of Lens Me Your Ears, where we're talking about films or watching films that have appeared on the recently released The Sight and Sound, greatest films of all time. Of course, Sight and Sound is published by the British Film Institute and uh, quite a different list compared to maybe the last. And it's 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 caused a lot of kerfuffle, a lot of conversation in, amongst cinephiles. And we just thought it was important to try to check out a few of these films, which, uh, which are available to be watched on the Criterion channel. Uh, two more films on our list in this episode. And the next one is Beau Travail from 1999, directed by Claire Denis. And it's... Um, uh, interesting to see this film climb into the top 10. I guess it was in the last list 10 years ago on the poll, but uh, this is the first time it's shown up in the uh, in the top 10. Uh, and I've long heard that it was Denny's uh, best film. I have to admit, I've been mixed on some of her more recent work. I like Let the Sunshine In, a great role for Juliette Binoche, but I really disliked her first English-language movie, High Life, with Robert Pattinson. Now, her most recent genre picture, which is available to be rented, called Stars at Noon, it's kind of a sweaty thriller set in Central America. I really liked Margaret Qualley's performance in the film, but I thought the movie was a little dramatically underpowered. So I guess I came to Beau Travai expecting, I don't know, something powerful, I'm, you know, not sure how to feel about it. Uh, and I'm not sure that I got that, but I did. I'll talk about some of the things I really liked about the film, the cinematography, especially. It's set and shot in Djibouti, right on the Horn of Africa. I don't know I've ever seen a film from Djibouti or any even footage. I can't. I mean, it kind of looks as I expected it to, which is astonishingly beautiful and arid place. And Denis takes advantage of it. Yeah, we really get a feel for the country here. Yeah, it's so gorgeous with the ocean and the desert and the beach and the mountains. It's astonishing uh, looking place. Um, and she's shooting, I think what makes it so special, it's this very masculine environment. It's a tale of a group of French foreign legion soldiers training and living together in the desert, but it's all told from her perspective. So very much, I guess the feminine gaze, if there is such a thing, there's something unique in the selling and the style. Uh, the only, I think filmmaker I can think who even compares is maybe Catherine Bigelow, who instead tries to beat the male filmmakers at their own game by doing, you know, action movies where Denise subverts how those tropes work here. Uh, she has a real in interest in sensuality, uh, and I've seen that in all her films. Uh, and there's a lot of scenes of these men. They're training in the desert. They're very physical with each other, running and embracing each other as part of their training. Lots of nudity and homoeroticism with all the muscles and tight shorts. And <laughs> you can see, I mean, you can feel how much she's enjoying putting these guys through their paces and reversing that gaze and playing with the ways that these kinds of narratives, these military narratives would traditionally be told and the thrills that might come from competition from action from war and those are absent here this is a very different kind of film what did you make of Beau Stephen? it's funny you, you mentioned Catherine Bigelow and I thought well, this must have been an influence on the Hurt Locker to some degree because hmm. I, I feel like there's the, that kind of that uh, mundanity of uh, military life you know there's moments of of violence and terror punctuated by long stretches of boredom and yeah and i feel like there's an element of that here although they, there's no combat but there is a, there's an incident involving a helicopter which uh involves loss of life and is probably like one of the great sort of traumatic moments for these uh these young men serving in, in a foreign country uh and uh i really found a lot to enjoy in this film in terms of the the we've got dennis levant or denis levant as galoop who's the main character he's a 
He's a career soldier who develops this fairly irrational jealousy slash hatred of a, of a fairly new recruit uh, who he feels maybe feels is getting too much attention from the superior officer. And uh, he, he decides to make it his goal to kind of, you know, ruin this young man for reasons that, you know, are all in his own head, basically. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's inspired by the Herman Melville novel, Billy Budd, which there's a terrific uh, Peter Ustinov film of that with Terrence Stamp. Uh, so it's interesting to, to kind of think about that story and see how this film kind of plays it out in, in modern times, or at least the, the modern times of what, 1990 or thereabouts. Um, and I, you know, I, I like that kind of disconnected hypnotic kind of way it has of, of, of leading us through, uh, you know, Galoop's fate as it were. Uh, you know, we already know early on in the film that he's been uh, discharged and, uh, we just kind of see that, that kind of growing, um, sort of paranoia and jealousy within him, which drives him to, to do something fairly inhuman, uh, to his, his fellow soldier. And, and I, I really like that progression, um, that kind of, uh, that non-traditional style of storytelling that got us there. Yeah, there's a lot of scenes with percussive music, some operatic men's choral score bringing this uh, dramatic tone uh, and that kind of primal intensity that reminds me, you know, some of the way that Kubrick used music in 2001, for instance. Um, and uh, yeah, and I I, uh, I mean, I liked the structure. I liked it formally. And I love the finale where a character does this amazing dance number, <laughs> yes. which seems so wonderfully contrary to where I thought the film was going to go. I thought that was amazing. I love that. Um, but yeah, again, I found the film an interesting formal experiment. But again, I don't know that I was that emotionally engaged yeah. by it. But I, I mean, I can see why it's considered for this list i do not think it deserves to be in the top 10 but but again i i struggle with some of uh denise work so maybe i'm you know i'm a little too subjective on that number well how about our last film uh while well, we still got a few minutes left uh journey to italy roberto rossellini's uh i guess final film uh with his uh then wife ingrid bergman and uh, directed by george saunders story of a of a couple whose marriage uh, is already on the rocks as the film starts and just gets progressively worse as it goes along. And uh, this was uh, one of your picks. Yeah, I hadn't seen this before. I we'd, George Sanders showed up in a film we saw the, in our last episode, um, the portrait, a uh, picture of Jor uh, Dorian Gray, excuse me. And uh, he was so good in that, I was ready to watch more George Sanders. <laughs> good a reason as any to watch. Yeah, and he is, they are both so good. I mean, this really is a great portrait of a... Of a, of a marriage collapsing where two characters are in a beautiful place and they're trying to just have a time together, but they are, they're angry with each other and they're disagreeing with each other and they decide to, to, you know, to basically split up. And one character goes to Capri, determined to enjoy time with friends and a younger crowd, and another uh, stays in, I guess, Naples and uh, and goes to see galleries and museums. And, and you just see how they do by themselves. And you see how the, it's, I mean, it is marriage melodrama to some degree, but there is this wonderful distance as if we're watching it, you know, through glass. And, uh, and I just, I love the locations, great use of, of locations in the area. And, uh, yeah, and there's a, there's, there's just, there's incredible moments. There's a scene in Pompeii where their relationship is crumbling and it's scored to something that sounds like Nino Rota, the Godfather score. <laughs> and they unearth two people's bodies as they watch and she sort of falls apart. That kind of emotional stuff really got through to me in a way that I, 
I really liked about this film. And, you know, in some ways it reminded me a bit of Two for the Road, which had yes, some, okay. you know, which I think is a really great film. In some ways, I think it's superior than this. But then I remembered Two for the Road came out 15 years later. So once again, I'm comparing this film to something that was uh, newer and maybe did things that I liked more, but probably wouldn't exist without the previous film. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you, of course, you mentioned George Saunders, and, and we also saw Ingrid Bergman on our last show uh, with Gaslight, and which is, uh, again, 10 years prior to her performance here. And and as with that film, uh, you know, just the intelligence in her performance, the, her face is this canvas that uh, just is so expressive. Uh, and so nuanced in terms of what she can portray without uh, being overly dramatic. Although we, she, you know, she certainly gets enough uh, opportunities to to really kind of uh, swing for the fences uh, when she needs to, but but only when she needs to. And I, I found it's it's a terrific performance uh, as well. I, I gather from what I've read that everybody making this had a terrible time. Because, of course, star and directors, um, you know, Bergman and Rossellini's marriage was coming apart at the seams. George Saunders had a terrible time making this film because uh, he was not used to – Rossellini, of course, was used to kind of shooting on the fly. And, and it, you know, that, that neorealist background of his where just capturing things in the moment and, and changing things up. And Sanders was, of course, used to a Hollywood studio system, you know, knowing your lines and not bumping into the furniture kind of style of thing and really wasn't uh, – up for the more improvisational uh, aspects of, of Rossellini's filmmaking. And yet somehow that tension really uh, comes across on the screen in, in a marvelous way somehow. Even even if they didn't enjoy themselves, it somehow made the made the material that much better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable film. And it's just, I think this might be one of my favorite performances by Bergman. You know, it's she, the way, it's also part of the way she's lit. And at this age in her life, she's sort of grown into herself. Her, her whole look and her whole intensity is, there's, I just sense the confidence in her performance in a way that maybe Maybe even in something like Casablanca, a movie I absolutely love, um, she doesn't quite, you know, she isn't quite the force. And the, when she gets angry in this film, boy, she, her <laughs> yes. fury is is so intense. And I I absolutely admired that. And and also her vulnerability is so astonishing. So yeah, I'm I can see why this is why Journey to Italy is definitely on this list. Um, yeah, I'm I'm so glad to have watched it. So concludes our look at the sight and sound greatest films of all time, or at least six of them. And I hope that you've enjoyed this uh, this this stroll through these films. And uh, maybe we'll go and check out the list and, and choose to watch some of these movies that you haven't seen before. Now, if you want to reach out to us on Lens Me Your Ears, we're on Facebook and we're also on Twitter. And Stephen, you're on Twitter. You've got your own handle. Yes, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I haven't defected the platform yet, but uh, you can find me there for the time being. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm listed under my blog, Flaw in the Iris. And we would like to thank CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5 p.m. Many thanks to our producers as well at the Village Soundcast Network. And thanks to you for listening to us grab it on and, you know, chat about movies and, and watch new movies. And uh, as we finish up uh, 2022, we'll be continuing into 2023 and hope that you'll join us again. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. 
All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.